How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm your host, Justin Podor. I'm here today with Cynthia Peters, a longtime activist in Boston, a writer uh, for ZNet and Z Magazine, and also the editor of a magazine called The Change Agent. I was really excited to talk to Cynthia because Cynthia is a longtime activist and an organizer with uh, a group called City Life and has done many other things in Boston. But I wanted to, Cynthia, welcome to the show. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about now that now that Trump uh, has become the president. Uh, what you know, as a as a long term activist who's been working on the ground on issues like housing um, and poverty, uh, what does it look like? How much change? is there and how much continuity is there in terms of what it looks like on the ground right now? Uh, well, good question. Uh, of course, there's a little of both. There's a lot of continuity and some very significant things that are, are pretty different. So the continuity is, is just that, you know, our task is the same. Our task is to organize a engaged and mobilized grassroots base that is strong enough, powerful enough to um, not just throw sands in the gears, throw sand in the gears of everything, as, as Francis Fox Piven uh, reminded us recently, um, but also to put forward alternatives, um, tell you know a different story about what could be, you know how we could organize uh, ourselves in society and in culture and in politics and especially in the economy, uh, and be be strong enough to both resist the capitalist, racist, and heteropatriarchal agenda uh, and put forward an alternative agenda. So we, the only way we can do that is with a very, very powerful grassroots base. Um, and then the things that are different are, uh, well, one is just everything's harder um, in some ways. Uh, people are more scared. Uh, immigrants, for example, are more scared to even just come out to a meeting or speak up about something uh, something that they might be facing at work or something that they might be facing in their housing, even if they're documented immigrants, even if they have citizenship, um, there's ways that they're just more scared to step up and take a stand. Uh, everybody's uh, just has this extra layer of stress and uh, kind of sense of emergency on them. So it's harder to ask people to do things, you know, show up at protests and possibly uh, you know, take more risks to raise their voice against something bad that's happening in the community. Um, so in that sense, things are harder. Um, you know, there's also, it's harder because there's more risk of division in our community. So for example, you know, if Boston uh, continues to be a sanctuary city, uh, which means as a city, we, we don't require our police force to act like immigration officials there's a risk that we'll lose some federal funding 
which is going to, of course, hurt our people at the base the most. It will cut in on their, uh, you know, already kind of small welfare entitlements, their housing, the federal support for, for public housing will get cut. So that will hurt our community at the base and cause divisions potentially between, you know, immigrant communities and other communities that um, are going to be affected by, you know, Boston continuing to be a sanctuary city. Um, you know, things like that. So more divisions and ways that we need to kind of get together to figure out how to not let those divisions, uh, uh, potential divisions really uh, hurt us. Uh, another thing that's different is just, and this isn't positive, is people are kind of coming out of the woodwork to protest. So we have a lot more people willing to step up and say no. And this is very dramatic difference. Uh, we're also getting covered by the media a lot more. That's very dramatic. I've mean, been organizing protests in Boston for decades and, you know, the, the mainstream media just religiously ignores us. And now, you know, it just takes a hundred people to be down at City Hall and it's on the front page of the Boston Globe. And it's kind of, it's kind of a very different moment to be covered by the mainstream media. So that's, that's something that we can take advantage of. And there's other things too, but I'll stop and there. So that, uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I'll, 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 I'll pick up the positive thread first. Uh, we can talk maybe more about the depressing and, and fear aspects a little bit later, but, but the, the idea that there are all these new people coming and I, I've, I've encountered this, I've, you know, and, and I think you and I have both encountered this before, probably 2003 was another example people kind of, oh, you know, getting getting interested in politics because of this dramatic event that was going on back then. It was the Iraq War. Um, you probably remember other surges um, besides that one. Um, but but so people are, that are just getting interested in politics because of Trump's election and all of these dramatic uh, moves that he made in the first week, like the, the Muslim ban and the... And, all these other executive orders and his appointments uh, to education and environment secretaries and so on. So are th these, um, th it ends up creating an alliance of people who see politics really differently. And so I'm wondering how you navigate that. So if it's, you know, a, a, a lot of people that just think that, you know, Trump is this aberration, which, uh, you know, I, I think he is, but, but then believe that if we could just go back to something like Obama or someone like Clinton in the White House, then everything would be okay. Uh, and and how do you start to how do you start to have a conversation about the the systemic aspects of this and and the systemic aspects of it that brought Trump into power in the first place? Yeah, it's that, that's exactly right. Many of the millions of people who are newly mobilized are people who believe the system was basically working and they wanted to go back to the way it was. So um, my my feeling about this large group of people is that uh, a lot of the, first of all, they're playing an important role in that they're moving the center back to where it needs where it should be. You know, we need to have some of these liberals holding up the center because it makes it easier for the left to exist. So we don't have to work so hard to 
sort of say, you know, because for a while there, it looked like John McCain was becoming the center, you know, and that's, you know, that's bad news when you're relieved about John McCain or, or he feeling like he's on your side. So I feel like a lot of the role of the newly mobilized liberals is to, like, at least hold out that center ground. Um, a lot of them will become radicalized in the process of, of, of being more tuned into politics. I think if the left does its job well, many of these people will start to see that the system really wasn't working before and is definitely not working now. And we don't, and going back to the way it was before is going back to, you know, the, the same injustices that, that really Trump has unmasked. I mean, systemic racism was very alive and well before Trump. Xenophobia, anti-Semitism, misogyny, uh, homophobia, um, you know, dramatic income inequality, dramatic inequality in our co in our in our country, were alive and well before Trump, and he sort of unmasked them in this dramatic way um, that has gotten people's attention. Um, but we need it, we need to somehow expose the fact that these systemic inequalities existed before, and going back to them is not the answer. We need to go forward to something different. So I think, yeah, it's really important for us to both welcome, you know, of course, we feel a little bit irritated sometimes. Where have you been? You know, where where have these millions of people been? You know, this was going on before. You know, I notice it in adult education. I, I work a lot in adult education. People are furious in adult education. They're furious about Trump. And there's a big part of me that says, where was your fury before? You know, we we were posing to our students that if you get a GED, if you improve your education, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you'll be able to get ahead in life and the American dream can be yours. We were posing that to them before and it wasn't true then either. You know, and where was your fury then? And I think that when people have a certain amount of privilege, if you have race privilege, education privilege, uh, f financial privilege, you tend to think the system works because it kind of has worked for you. So you sort of think, well, it probably could work for everybody then. And it's easier to put blinders on to the fact that it really doesn't work. Um, so maybe now people will be able to see that and take that in and, and take on the mission of not just going backwards, but going forwards to something significantly, substantively different. I have all, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about also the, the liberal, like when, when I read liberals now after the election, there's a lot of anger directed towards leftists and I think kind of misplaced I don't think we had that much to do with why Trump won but that that rage at you know maybe we didn't vote for Hillary or well I mean I don't vote in American elections of course but like uh, you know leftists should have you know that, that didn't vote for Hillary because they were so angry about uh, Bernie losing or um, or they voted for Stein or whatever. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of that kind of anger um, that I, I see at least in the public kind of dis discussion or uh, about Trump and, and liberals. And I wondered how that um, like even even I think to, to some someone like making the kind of argument that we've just had where where we say like there's all this continuity and and there, there was this incredible, incredibly unequal system, and there was war, and there was climate change, and all of these problems were were happening, uh, police violence, 
uh, deportations, but um, I, I've seen a, this liberal formulation like, oh, well, you didn't think that Hillary was that different from Trump, and how's that working out for you now? So there's this, uh, like, ha have you, I, I, and I just, you know, because I'm in Canada, and I'm watching a lot of this unfold over the media or over the left media or over the over the over the social media. I wonder what it what the conversations actually are like when you're having a conversation with somebody in the states, um, in Boston. Like, do, do these are these things are these things at like phenomena of of the internet or are these kinds of conversations really happening? Oh boy, there's so many different kinds of conversations happening. Um, you know, I mean, I think on one level there's this there's this kind of shock that you see white people. Uh, what you know, where you, where I notice it the most is white people or people with a certain amount of privilege just kind of going around expressing incredible shock. You know, this urgency and this emergency, this feeling of oh my god you know everything's falling apart and um it's 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 i think that that does come out of a place of you had some amount of willful ignorance before this you know you were protected from reality by 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 believing in the system and by, by believing that those by Obama, that all of obama's deportations were some sort of weird blip on the screen or that all the the police violence oh yeah it was terrible it was just terrible but it's something that we can just get over if we just you know and that we can fix climate change in the context of neoliberal uh, global capitalism and um and so i actually a number of people of color that i know who i've talked to about they're kind of like they almost have this this attitude of well you know we always felt this way you know we always felt like we were living in an emergency we always felt like there was a state of urgency we didn't know day to day when we get up out of bed in the morning and walk out into the world you know which of our neighbors is going to be shot which of our neighbors is going to be evicted which of our you know families is going to be broken up by you know yet another incarceration um you know this is this is how life felt for us all along the way you know and now white people are sort of joining or white privileged people are kind of joining in this uh kind of new consciousness of alarm. Uh, I was wondering about like how much how much of a blame game is going on. Okay. So you started with shock, but I also yeah. wondered like, you know, what what the Bernie Hillary conversation was when the primaries were going on and then also now uh, after people are looking for someone to blame. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there was there was a, a lot of that right after the election, and I don't think there's so much of it anymore. But it, I think it just definitely went both ways. I mean, the Bernie the Bernie supporters felt really mad at the Hillary supporters because they said, you know, you sold us all short. You know, you you said we have to go with the neoliberal, you know, trans corporate class candidate, um, and you know that that screwed us in the end because we could have had a, a sort of a democratic socialist. And he, if it had been Bernie against uh, Trump, uh, Bernie could have won. And so the blame game can go that way, and it can also go the other way, where you know the Hillary supporters say, "Well, you, you know, you got you got too uh, rigid about about uh, your ideology, and you should have jumped on board for Hillary." And the fact that you didn't meant that we lost. Um, and I just, I don't, I'm, 
I'm not, I don't think either of those arguments is useful. I think what's useful is that, is to, wh when I look back on the left and criticize the left, what I feel critical of is we don't have any kind of unified, we don't have any kind of strategy. We don't have any way of all talking to each other about how to deal with the historical moment that we're in. We don't, we're, s we're in splinter groups, you know, the left that, the part of the left that's organized is in splinter groups, we barely talk to each other. The social movement left is splintered off or siloed off in, in its little, you know, different reform work that it's, that it's uh, focusing on. There's n very little coming together to figure out what do we do? You know, I, I, as I said recently to some friends of mine, I said, like, who's calling the meeting? Who's calling the meeting of the U.S. left to say, what do we do right now? Now, we didn't do that in pre you know, as the election was happening. We never do that. We always, you know, what happens is every four years, you know, everybody jumps into high gear and starts getting into fights about how to go forward. And the Stein people support Stein and the Bernie people support Bernie and the Hillary, you know, and, and there's no coming together to figure out what's the most strategic thing to do right here. Uh, and so we didn't do it for the election. Uh, we need to do it now because we need to make sure we drag him down as much as possible. We need to slow down everything about this administration. We need to figure out a strategy for staying in the streets without exhausting ourselves or getting disappointed, you know, and going home after we, you know, have a certain amount of time feel like, well, that way that didn't work or something like that. We need to have a long, a short-term, mid-term, and a long-term strategy. And my question to the left is, Who's calling the meeting? You know, we need to get together to figure this out. So, yeah, blame. If you if you were if you were calling the meeting, do you think people would go? Like, is it, is there also a problem of like who are we calling? Who's the who's calling the meeting? Who are we calling? Who who would answer the call? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, are, are these all problems, or is it just the the first step that's I the biggest problem? I think it's the first step. I think it's a failure of imagination, a failure of, of taking ourselves seriously, a failure to see the left as an actual agent, historical agent in this moment. I think we've just gotten too used to seeing ourselves as ineffectual. And so then what we do is we kind of resign ourselves to, well, let's just do what we can. You know, let me just show up at this protest. Let me just try to, you know, like in my work, you know, let me try to stop this eviction. Let me try to pass this kind of fairly weak law that we're working on in Boston right now called Just Cause Eviction. I mean, an important law, but ultimately a fairly weak law, but something that we can mobilize around and something that will possibly stop some amount of displacement happening in our cities due to gentrification. Well, Cynthia, the things that you're talking about are so much higher level than what probably a lot of people think they're doing is let me send out this retweet or or like this you know radical facebook post uh which i think are you know substitutes for action for millions of people right right but i mean that's if i the what i want to be doing in my life and what i want for a lot of people who who really are want to make social change is i want people to be able to be involved locally in something that makes a difference, something that build that, that doesn't just win potential reforms, but actually builds a base. Because we started out at the very beginning of this conversation talking about what we really need is a very large, mobilized, engaged, grassroots base. 
where where leadership where there's leadership, you know, where people understand the situation there, and they're being strategic about how to fight back. Uh, we need that, and then we also need, you know, a way to get together across all of the different efforts that we're working on to actually make strategy. This is a very significant historical moment. We have, you know, we have Trump in office with this kind of diverse right-wing cabinet. I mean, it's uh, it sort of seems slightly chaotic on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it seems like uh, they may have actually thought this through. You know, they've got members of the religious right. They've got the kind of the Tillerson-led, you know, what they call like the trans corporate class, you know, the people who sort of still believe in transnational globalism. And then you've got like Trump and Bannon and the people who are more nationalistic and xenophobic and, you know, that kind of part of the right. And they're all in there together. And um, we have this opportunity to possibly exploit differences among the elite. We have an opportunity where there's millions of people in the street to figure out how do we best leverage that. We have an opportunity to try to get an alternative narrative forward. You know, Trump is so good at putting out his narrative. You know, where's our narrative? Where's the counter narrative? Have we framed it? Have we thought about it? Are we finding ways to put it out over and over and over again? Uh, no, I mean, we haven't, we're not, we're not doing that. I think that's where we need to go. And I think what gets in our way is, is, uh, is some sort of you know, just not quite taking ourselves seriously, not quite, as, as they say, in it to win it. You know, we don't quite think we can win it. So instead, we sort of step back and go, well, let me just at least try to get this little piece done. And I want to challenge us to take on the bigger piece and to say, this is a really important historical moment for the left. What are we doing to step up to the plate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can identify with that feeling that you describe about just feeling really psyched out and, and kind of like we're not really a big player in what's going on right now and so it's it's easier to just almost give up but but it's also a very you know it's also easy for someone who's living in a comfortable situation to to, to feel that way right to say oh well I'll yeah. just hang out with my, live with my family and try to well, and there's enough, there's enough challenges there. <laughs> but, you know, I, um, it's the ultimate self-fulfilling prophecy, of course, you know. Um, and, you know, and I'll just say that it's, you know, I, I want to I talk a little bit about some of the organi organizing I did in this one particular building in Dorchester here in, in Boston. You know, we, we always, um, we do tenant organizing. What we do is we try to get a building, the tenants in a building to make themselves into a tenant association. It's kind of like a union for, for your apartment building. And the idea of it is, um, we, as a tenant association, you say to your landlord, I'm not going to talk to you about my rent as an individual. I'm going to talk to you as an association of tenants. And we've just simply established ourselves. We said, we are an a tenants association. That's what we are. And we're going to talk to you as that. And we want you to meet with us as an association. And a huge, a huge victory is when the landlord agrees to meet with us as an association, just right there, because then he, the landlord's legitimizing the fact that this association exists, and people experience themselves as an association as opposed to individuals. And it's a huge 
thing to overcome. It's really hard to get there. When I do organizing in buildings and we're trying to get the tenant association off the ground, probably the most important work I do is we practice role plays. You know, because I tell them, the landlord's going to call you. And he's going he's gonna to say, listen, help me out here. You know, I'm just, a, I'm, just a, I'm just a guy trying to make a buck. I bought this building. I'm trying to, like, you know, make, make, my, make my mortgage payments. Help me out here a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll just raise your rent $50 a, a month, okay? Will that, will that work for you? I, I want that to work for I want you to stay in your home. And, and they're going to pick you out, and they're going to individually try to negotiate with you. And, and I know you're you, a reasonable person, and exactly. I don't think that you want to get mixed up with all these other people in the building that are not reasonable and they're just trying to they're just trying to get your money for themselves or god knows what their agenda is so exactly and and it's a very powerful argument you know hey i'm just a guy trying to make a buck mm-hmm. you know i i bought this building and you know gee i can barely make my mortgage payments and that's mm-hmm. people are very sympathetic to that because that's a dominant narrative in our culture you know mm-hmm. It's your God-given right, you know, is to take somebody's home and turn it into real estate speculation so you can get rich off of it. And so, <laughs> Our president, your president exercised that right exactly. all the way to, yeah. But like okay. I said, I mean, probably you know, one of the most important things about organizing is doing these role plays where we practice having the landlord call you and try to pull you out as an individual and getting people to this place where they can they say, yeah. Oh, thanks for calling. Um, but you know, but I I need to refer you to the tenants association. You know, I I can't speak to you myself. And you know that you don't. It's not being rude. You're not being impolite. You're not. But it's so hard when people do this role play. They're shaking from fear. It's it's breaking a pattern. It's breaking um, this sense of of where you are in relation to the landlord. And then when you are able to pull off the opposite and form a tenant association, the, the feeling of solidarity then that starts to happen in a building is so powerful. It's so amazing. People will end up crying. People will end up just tearful about, oh, my God, I, now I know my neighbors. Now people have my back. Um, I can't, you know, th- this is a completely different feeling. And you go from feeling weak and powerless and you're at their mercy to, oh, I can just stand up against this. It's not even that hard. You know, I don't even have to go to, into a pitched battle, you know. And, um, but that is, you know, sort of doing that work on the ground and being part of these moments where transformation happens, that's partly what keeps me going. You know, I, I'm, I'm touched. I'm, 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 I'm rooted in transformational work where I get to see that happen on a daily basis. And that is so powerful. It, it keeps me strong for the harder the much harder work, which is c- getting together across silos, getting together across our splinter groups, taking ourselves seriously, you know, but knowing that we have these alternative stories and knowing how powerful they can be at the base really keeps me, keeps me well, in the battle. The last time I visited you in Boston, you took me to a City Life Viva Urbana meeting, and it was closer to the... Um, financial crisis, foreclosure crisis times, uh, you know, around, I think it was around 2010 or 2011, something like that. And, and you guys were fighting evictions and foreclosures. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of interesting stories about kind of collective power there. I, I wouldn't mind if you telling one of them that you told me that blew my mind, which was like, that you guys would show up 
uh, when a when an auction was going on or a, yeah, could you just could you just talk about yeah, yeah. that? Yeah, I mean it's amazing. It doesn't take much, honestly. Um, you know, it, what happens is uh, when a bank forecloses on a home, you know, the family might still be living in the home. Of course, they usually are. we ask we in City Life we say make sure you stay, make sure you don't leave because if you leave the house, it's much harder to get you back in. They, but if you stay in the house, we can often defend you against eviction. So one of the things that happens is when a bank forecloses, now the bank owns the home, and they will try to auction it off, and they'll hold an auction, and, and investors will come. And it's usually investors. It's usually not you know just some family that's looking to buy a home. It's usually a developer, and they own properties all over the city, and then what they want to do is they want to empty it out, fix it up, and sell it for twice as much. So um, what we do as City Life is we just show up at the auction, and we have our signs, and we put sign the, the homeowner or the former homeowner uh, puts signs in the window and just says we shall not be moved in several different languages and we show up and we um, the auction come you know the the, ba- the bankers and the developers come they pull up in their fancy cars and we're just there with our motley crew and we just go up to them and we say you know uh, we don't shout at them we don't have to yell at them we just go up and we just say if you buy this building you're going to be buying resistance you're you're buying you're buying us your your city life is going to dog you and it will not be fun for you we will be in court we will defend this family and we just tell them this family has lived in this community for generations um their kids their grandkids this is this is their home that and we you know we give them details about the family you know they've run the daycare they've you know whatever they've whatever it is we tell their story and we just say we're city life is going to defend this family and you know what? They usually just drive away. They just get in their cars and drive away. Yeah, well, I don't want to do, you know, what do I want to buy that that okay. nightmare for? And so, you know, if we were stronger, if we had enough people to be at every auction, you know, if we could be, uh, right now we're doing a lot more tenant organizing now. And I tell you, you've, you not, we go door knocking. We, somebody answers the door and they say, oh, well, that's interesting that you're here. I just got an eviction notice. I was getting ready to move. And we say, well, you know, you have rights as a tenant. You don't have to move. In Massachusetts, actually only a judge can evict you. So you got a 30-day notice from your landlord. You, you just need to, you need to stay in your apartment and you need to come to a city life meeting and let us, meet, you can meet with a lawyer for free. You can talk to our organizers and learn more about what your options are. And if we get to somebody who's being evicted before they leave, can keep them in their apartment. We can we it is we can we can defend people and keep them in their apartments. It's right, just happens over and over again. Because a lot of the power that's exercised over people is not it depends on their compliance and it depends on them not knowing what their exactly what their because the person are. that's telling you your options is the person that's actually trying to get you to leave. Right. Most right. of the time. Yeah, I just talked to somebody the other day. Who just they the guy the guy did a total building clear out and he sent a moving van over there and I mean so that's what people are trying to do because they want these buildings they want to fix them up and you know re-rent them at you know twice the twice the rent Um, so I mean it's it's really interesting to to hear from a from someone who's an organizer who's been fighting uh, this specific kind of development driven developer driven urban agenda of displacement because it's it's just strange because there's a there's a real estate tycoon now in the mm-hmm. in the white house right. so it's it's really it's really kind of yeah kinda that's where we just you know putting out this the alternative 
narrative. I mean, this was a very hard hump to get over. I mean, at my the building in in Dorchester that I was working with, they finally we kind of chased away the slumlord who was who was keeping the place just as a complete pit, and a new person, a new landlord, a new company bought it. And, you know, they wanted to raise the rents because they said, well, we had to pay, you know, $4 million for this building or whatever they had to pay for it. And we deserve to raise the rents because otherwise we can't make our mortgage payments. And we had to really practice being able to say back, so sorry that you decided to use our homes as your real estate speculation. You know, we can't help it that you did that. We can't help it that that's how it's set up, you know, but it's not our fault and we're not going to let you do it. You know, so it's it's a but it's a real switch, right? Because it's not the dominant narrative, and it's hard to. Uh, and 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 also speaking, you mentioned you brought up daily life. You know, it's people's daily lives are hard enough. You know, getting schools are closing. You know, daycare is so expensive. Um, you know, police actions are threatening and scary it's hard enough to get out of bed in the morning and face the day you know as a a person with few resources with with no skin color privilege and um but um you know so so now we're asking them to take on in addition you know this other level of fight and for some people they just feel like you know i can't i can't do it i'm moving to brockton you know and uh you know oh i wanted to say one other thing i i want i just i you know, I do a lot of housing organizing, but I think in any organizing struggle, we can always be doing these two things, which we, yeah, I think I got this idea from Michael Leibowitz, this concept of walking on two legs. This idea that at any moment, um, we're both trying to kind of, you know, engage the base in the struggle, but also develop leadership there. So people feel like, you know, they're in charge of, of of what's happening to them. And one thing I noticed that happened at Hancock is that um, a lot of internal fights were happening among the tenants. And because of the leadership development that happened around starting a tenants association, people started, instead of calling the cops on each other or you know, acting out in some other way towards each other, they went to the tenant association leaders and said, can you help me figure this issue out? I'm having an issue with my neighbor. Can you help me figure it out? And um, that was really a kind of a powerful thing to notice too. So, and this this falls under, to some extent, base building ultimately because you're creating uh, relationships and more confidence in in collective action, and and in pe- and people individually are becoming more confident too. Right, and and solidarity is is the model, and we're all on the same side as opposed to as opposed to individually just trying to survive, you know? And so that vibe really changed in the building. People, when there was a conflict, and like I said, instead of just blowing up about it, they looked for a solution together, you know? And that's a real, that's a, that changes the game. Um, you know, in another, I just, there's another story that I want to tell you. This is in a different thing. I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about mass incarceration and trying to change that situation. Um, how do you do that? How do you build a base to do that um, as well as change laws? Uh, and one of the things I saw happen recently, this was a summer or two ago, uh, a youth who was a member of a youth program that I'm involved with, this place called the City School, which does a lot of political education and leadership development among youth. Um, one of the kids, one of the young people in their program was on parole 
and uh, he broke parole by, you know, doing some boneheaded thing like stealing a scooter and driving it around for a while and then getting caught. And so he got brought before the juvenile judge. And when his program, you know, the other 60 young people in his program found out that he was in juvenile court, they just stood up and they walked out of their program and they said, we have to go. We have to go down there right now. And they went down to the juvenile court and they weren't allowed in because it's juvenile court. You're not allowed. The public is not allowed in. But they said somehow got in word and the lawyer, the guy's lawyer came out and said, oh, my God, there's 60 people here. And the 60 people were basically saying, we claim this young man. We want this young man back in our program. And the judge was having to decide whether to put him in detention or release him or what to do. And the lawyer went back and said, you know, there's 60 people out there that say that this this young man is in their program. (laughs) And the judge said, wait, you kidding me? There's 60 people out there? What? You know, and they kind of had this back and forth through the doorway and the messaging went back and forth. And and the judge basically got swayed. He's like, well, you know, if there's 60 people out there claiming that they're your community and they want you back and they're going to keep an eye on you, I'm going to not put you in detention. I'm going to release you and you better behave yourself for the rest of the summer or whatever he said, I don't know. But it was an example of, you know, showing up, using your, using solidarity, using a group group strength, you know, to claim our people. And, you know, this has been done in other ways too, just showing up and doing court solidarity. And when the judge sees like a big crowd around a, a defendant, you know, and the crowd is sort of symbolizes, you know, we're here, we're here for this person. Um, it can change the game and you can build your base that way. Um, so yeah, it's possible to do it in all of our struggles. And you've also done some work trying to build a more national kind of coalition, right? Are you talking about left roots work? Or? Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, I'm a lifelong leftist, uh, but I've never been a member of any left organization until now. And I recently became a member of Left Roots. And I, the reason I decided to join this organization is because I feel like it, it's really different from a lot of the sectarian left organizations that I've usually, you know, usually what is available to choose from. And <laughs> what I like about it is very big tent, multi-tendency. Uh, there's not like a rigid ideological thing that you're supposed to subscribe to. Um, yet it's not devoid of ideology. I mean, it's anti-capitalist, it's anti-systemic racist, it's anti-heteropatriarchy, it's, it's, and, and then it's in favor of what, something that what we call in Left Roots 21st century socialism, you know, which the models are basically mostly in Latin America for that. Um, it's not very detailed vision of, of, what, of what socialism could look like. Uh, but it's a start, and there's going to be more effort to try to put more flesh on the, the socialist vision. Um, but yeah, and I also like it that it's um, it's required that you're engaged in grassroots organizing. This, this is not a collection of, of random leftists or armchair leftists or people who just say they're a leftist because they read a couple of books or something. It's people who are really engaged in struggle and people who are most affected by oppression that exists in this country. So it's led by people of color, it's led by women, it's led by working class people. Um, and I, I really like all those aspects of it. So I've recently thrown my hat into the Left Roots ring and doing my best to build the Boston branch um, and no, really loving noticing the other branches that are developing in other cities and just seeing it grow very carefully, very slowly, very intentionally, uh, you know, and, and 
possibly being a, a forum someday, hopefully soon, for bringing people together around vision and strategy for the left. Could, could left roots call a meeting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Left Roots is well poised. And in, in fact, you know, and so it's one question for the national. Um, I'm more involved right now in the Boston branch. And in fact, we did exactly that. You know, af in November, after Trump got elected, we had a, a, a Left Roots meeting and some of us said, what are we doing? You know, what what is as Left Roots? What can we do? Here we are, a group of like 25 people who are rooted in the social movement left. And when I say social movement left, you know what I mean, right? I mean, it's, it's people doing grassroots organizing, working on reforms, but who want radical change in the long term, but perhaps haven't quite figured out how do you work on radical systemic change while you are engaged in short-term reform struggles. The crudest contrast I would make would be, say, like the social movement left versus like the electorally oriented mm -hmm. left or something right. like that. So we asked ourselves, what do we want to do? And we ended up uh, we ended up calling a meeting and we invited the larger social movement left, not just left roots type people. But we said, let's just we'll throw this wide open to um, the labor unions um, that we have connections with, the grassroots organizations and you know, we had these massive kind of community meetings that were really well done and inc people were incredibly well behaved. And I know you've been to a lot of meetings yourself and people sometimes use meeting. They don't have good behavior in meetings. They, they sort of act out their issues in front of large groups of people rather than uh, ask themselves, you know, what can I do to help forward this meeting and move these questions forward and instead of having that as their kind of primary thing on their mind they're maybe kind of trying to work out some other thing but yeah I, I heard an expression about a year and a half ago that I really liked is that some people are just looking for ears they're just looking for ears yes to hear yes. what they have to say oh, we need ears so badly we all do we just want to be heard and Sometimes we just can't help it. It's like, wow, I have a captive audience of 80 people and they're going to all listen to me because they're they're respectful and they're polite and they don't want to say shut up and sit down. And, you know, we're 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 almost too democratic in that way, you know, that we lose the discipline. Of, we really need, we need to move this question forward that we called you here for. Um, so there's there's I've seen different strategies for how to cope with this in meetings. And it's something that we definitely need to get better at because we often can get derailed by that one or two, you know, undisciplined people who use the meeting for, for the for the ears that they so desperately need. My conclusion from all this is that this latter part of the, the idea of trying to build a, a coalition or a longer term, larger movement is that that's just, it's just uh, sweat equity, right? I mean, it's really like just going to take a lot of work and a lot of patience and time that was short, but we'll just have to, there's no way to do it, but to do it, I guess. There's no way to do it, but to do it. I mean, it, and you get those lessons over and over again when you're an organizer, you know, there's no shortcuts, you know, you just got to keep pounding the pavement. You got to keep talking to people. You got to keep listening to people. Um, and I mean, what happened with this, when we called this meeting and we had, we had a series of really great community meetings it's hard to hold a meeting with 80 people in it, you know, but we actually made decisions. People were, like I said, they were disciplined. People disagreed and they stayed with it. Even if they lost the vote, you know, they stayed with it because they saw, 
you know, that the process was, was good. And they said, well, I law, I it's not happening the way I want to happen it to happen, but I'm going to stick with this group. And we ended up doing this big inauguration day protest. And the most important test all along the way was, we're not doing this just to do the inauguration day protest. We're doing this because the most important thing is what we do afterwards. And sure enough, you know, the meetings have stayed very large. We're still, we're still meeting. We're still getting together. We're trying to figure out what is our strategy in Boston. You know, forget, you know, we need a national strategy, but also all of our cities, you know, leftists in all of our cities need to be getting together and saying, what are we going to do in our city? And how are we going to get together and figure this out together? And, and it's almost like that role play that you did for the tenant and the landlord. It's like you, you kind of need to game out what will happen if you stay a sanctuary city and they cut your funding. What's mm -hmm. your move? Yeah, that's right. Game it out. What's, what is our move and how do we protect our people? You know, because our, our people are going to get hit hard by that. You know, if, and if we, if we don't have a strategy in place, it's just going to backfire, you know. So, but are we taking it seriously enough where we're really thinking it through and my answer to that is not yet. We need to keep exercising that muscle. It's it, to me, it's the we take ourselves seriously muscle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're yeah. in it to win it muscle. Uh, are we at every turn? Are we asking ourselves, is this going to help us win? Well, that's a pretty good note to end on, I think. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much, Cynthia Peters. Great to talk to you, Justin.